Hello, it's Dawn, and this is my podcast, Conversations. It's a variety show about real life stuff, and there's something on here for everybody. So if that sounds good to you, let's go. Welcome to another episode of Conversations. Today we have Valerie. Welcome, Valerie. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Okay, so Valerie is the owner of the Yellow Cake Shop, and you guys specialize in luxury clothing. Is that right? Yeah, I would say, you know, luxury for me is always such a tricky word because when I think luxury, I think of like, you know, Versace and dripping in diamonds. But (laughs) I will say we definitely are a premium compared to, you know, regular, you know, bargain basement, H&M, Target shopping. So yeah, we're definitely a, a handmade premium and we really pride ourselves in the craftsmanship of our work. Right. So it's more um, custom, right? Uh, yes and no. I mean, we, ha- we have a lot of pieces that we do that are, you know, they're, they're, we call them ready to wear, quote unquote. So we have, you know, a set of patterns that we've worked on over the last you know decade and a half. And we've tested the fit and we know that they sell well and our clients love the style. But then we also do a lot of custom and bespoke work. Um, so we have clients that come to us with, you know, um, an idea for a garment that they want to wear for their 60th birthday party or something that they want to have done for a special gift for their mom. Or, you know, maybe they are coming to us for their wedding dress or their, you know, their bridal party dress. So we kind of you know, do, do a little bit of, of everything in, in that arena for women's wear. That's awesome. So that's basically like people could just come in and give measurements and stuff and just say, this is kind of what we're thinking. And then you guys create it. Uh, yeah, something like that. Typically they'll, they'll come to us with an idea. We get an idea of what their budget is. We ask them for reference photos. We, you know, I think a lot of people think there's a difference between a designer and a seamstress, right? So a seamstress is someone where you can go, Hey, I want this. I saw it in a magazine. Can you make it? And they'll say yes or no, but we, we can't do that because, you know, we're, we're not going to plagiarize someone else's work. You know, we're, we're also a design team. So we, people that know our work, they want us to make them something because they like our aesthetic. Um, and if they see something that's an inspiration for them, we can take that inspiration and we can marry their inspiration with our design sense and aesthetic and make something that's you know perfect for them. So we'll take their measurements, we'll collaborate with them on a drawing and, a, and an idea, and then we'll do fittings, we'll source the fabric, we'll make the garment, and then and that's how it goes. That is so awesome. You know, I just was shopping with my husband last weekend and I told him, I said, I don't think the clothes that I'm looking for have either been invented yet, or maybe they just are not in any of the stores that I'm looking at. I don't think that I'm super picky, but when you go to a lot of stores, it's all kind of catered towards the same age range, or I don't even know what it's just, it's, there's not a lot of variety for certain age groups. I guess I'll say it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I think it really it just depends on the region you're in and you know what what's available to you. So I think that's also a challenge for a lot of women. You know, it depends on where they live, what their budget is, um, you know, what what's the the area they live in where cuz cuz fashion overall, it gets to different parts of the country at different times, you know. So obviously in the East Coast, you know, Upper East Coast, you know, New York, they're they're kind of, you know, New York, California, they're they're kind of privy to the trends and new innovations and things that are interesting and different in fashion before anyone else in, in America. Right. South, they're getting things years behind everyone else. And so that's why, you know, if you want to, you want to try to be fashionable or look for, for trends or look for things that are innovative, you don't want to shop in Texas. (laughs) (laughs) Would you guys say, are you guys trendy at all? Or do you try and stay very classic? Yeah. For us, our, our whole, 
motto and mantra is really sticking to things that are timeless, staple items, things that are classic that we know are, you know, we'll, we'll be able to buck the trends, things that aren't going to go out of style next year. You know, we, we don't do cutouts. We don't do neon. We don't do, you know, um, I don't know, whatever it is that millennial or Gen Z Instagram influencers are promoting. That's not really what we're about. We're, we're really about um, creating garments that we know will make women look and feel their best, but that they'll also be able to wear for as many years as possible because we're not about perpetuating this idea that fashion is meant to be a flash in the pan kind of situation. We don't want it to be something that you're wearing today and tomorrow, maybe next week, and then it's going to be in the trash or on Poshmark, you know, next month. We want to be, you know, because we know that the pieces we make are, they're, they're premium, right? There is an investment sometimes for some people. And we want these pieces to last the wearer as long as possible because we want it to be better for the planet, pocketbook. And we also want it to be, you know, um, something that's going to bring them joy for as much as possible. Right. So what exactly is slow fashion? Oh, that's a really great question. And, you know, I think slow fashion is something that most independent designers think most people know about, but it's really kind of a, a mystery to a lot of people. Um, slow fashion and fast fashion are kind they're they're in the same family, but they're estranged, right? They're cousins that don't get along. And so, <laughs> you know, fast fashion is, you know, uh, the the popular rich bitch bossy girl in, you know, a 90s rom-com, right? And slow fashion is, you know, the quiet, meek, nerdy girl that gets a glow up in the middle of the movie, right? <laughs> and so um, yeah, you know, slow fashion is the the process of creating clothing and um, fashion for a consumer to use for as long as possible. It, it typically, it's built to last a lifetime if it can be used a lifetime. Um, but slow fashion is also used with the intention of being built with um, responsible, ethical practices in mind, right? So the person that's making the garment is paid a fair living wage. The people that are creating the pieces and providing the services are given the best quality of life possible. Um, the textiles and the materials used to make the garment are thoughtful. You know, they, they don't have to be, you know, linen or organic materials that are made by blind nuns in Italy and you know, <laughs> on a sustainable farm that uses only, you know, right to generate electricity, whatever, you know, it, it doesn't have to be that idealist, but, you know, they are used with textiles that are more thoughtful. So they can either be dead stock, they can be organic textiles, they can be a mix of both, they can be, um, you know, used, made with upcycled materials or a mix of both. Um, and so, um, you know, slow fashion is really the intention of making products that the, the manufacturer or the designer knows they can sell. So our whole shtick is that we, we make products that we know we can sell instead of making an abundance of products and hoping we sell the majority of it. You know, um, fast fashion is what is known in the industry as a, um, a push manufacturer, right? So they're mm -hmm. making all they can and they're pushing it out of the world and pushing on people with sales and discounts and, you know, constant um, promotion and an overabundance of, um, you know, encouraging the client to consume as much as possible, right? But slow fashion, we make our pieces in what we call either um, one piece flow or small batch production, where we're making smaller quantities of items and styles and materials and pieces that we know we can sell. We might have some small overstock of things based on our his historicals and our data, but what we're doing is we're making pieces and we're, we're pulling in our clients, to, we're pulling in our clients to buy our pieces instead of pushing it on them, you know, consistently um, through the typical fashion calendar. Right.
So what do you guys do with your overflow? Um, you know, we, we try to do lots of things. Um, we, uh, obviously we offer free repairs for all of our garments, for all of our clients. So that way, a, it builds trust with our client that, you know, we're making to suit them for as long as possible. We're not trying mm-hmm. to sell them. It's going to break down on them. Um, but B, it also, um, gives them, um, the confidence to buy from us again. Um, and so they're buying pieces that they know they're going to last them for as long as possible. And then we also have a buyback program. So we have a, we call it our pre-love program where we, we've been in business for over 13 years now. We've had clients buying from us since 2010 that, you know, they have pieces, maybe they bought whenever they were, you know, before they had their first big girl job. Maybe they bought some pieces from us before they had kids. (laughs) Maybe they bought pieces from us before they lost weight, you know? And so we um, have the option for them to bring back those garments. We evaluate them for credit. We give them credit to buy new pieces. And then we resell their pre-loved items at less than half of the retail value so that we're able to also bring in clientele that maybe can't afford our typical retail prices, but they still want a piece of yellow cake. Yeah. So then it allows us to keep it circular. It doesn't stay in their closet collecting dust. It doesn't go to, sorry, I think my computer keeps having these. Is that my computer? I think it's mine. I'm so sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, So, um, so yeah, so that's the way that we can mitigate overstock, but also when we do have overstock, we really try to watch it closely. So if, if a style or a colorway isn't performing well, then, you know, we, offer it at a discount or we offer some bundled items or, you know, we try to, um, we, we will donate some items when we can. Uh, we don't do it often because we don't have a lot to donate sometimes. Usually we can sell most of the things that we make. But in the event we do have an overstock, say we made a really bad decision. Like I made this really poor decision once to order all of this pink and white striped jersey and it just isn't <laughs> doing well. I thought it'd be cute and some people like it, but not it's not, it's not very popular. And so you know, we may end up donating some of those to Dress for Success or to Laura's Home, which is a women's shelter, you know. Um, so when we can, we'll do that. Or we might alter the item. You know, if it's a long sleeve maxi dress, we might shorten the hem, shorten the sleeves, and then it might do better because it might be more, um, you know, more accommodating to more clients that way. Um, but yeah, we, we try really hard to be crafty where we can um, to really be resourceful when we're able to and to only buy the goods when we know we can sell the product. Gosh, I love that. And the way that you articulate it, you can tell it's your, you think things through. I love that. It's very yeah. thoughtful, very intentional. Um, and two things came to mind when you were saying all of that. One, that it's kind of old school, like how people would have their um, place, they would take their shoes to get mended. If they're, instead of replacing their shoes, they had their neighborhood place that they would take their shoes yeah. or, and you guys are kind of re- reinventing that, bringing it mm-hmm. back. That's awesome. Yeah. So um, buy things online from you guys? Do you guys do it that way or is it all in store? No, it's both. So we, we're really trying to pr- do a lot more online um, if, as we as we grow because it's definitely more sustainable for us. It'll help us reduce our carbon footprint as well. You know, we, we do a lot of retail shows all over the country and that's definitely been a really great way for us to grow our company grassroots style. But e-commerce for us is definitely something we're pursuing heavy this year and next year. Um, so we, we've always had an online shop. But it's, we're definitely making it easier for our clients to shop with us online um, over the next you know, year or so. So that it's, it's just more approachable. And we have clients everywhere now. We have clients in Chicago, D.C., Philadelphia, St. Paul, you know, and, and we'd love to be able to expand more. Um, and the way we can do that is through e-commerce. So, so you can shop online. You can shop in studio. You can email us if you're not sure what to buy online. We even do virtual shopping appointments with a lot of our clients, too, that, you know, they live in Maryland or Chicago, but they like having that one-on-one attention and they like to know and get their questions answered before they buy online. So we do a lot of that as well. Sometimes we'll even, you know, we, we do a lot of our, you know, VIP clients in the studio and we'll have, you know, um, wine and snacks and we'll just kind of make it a whole fun, you know, girl yeah. 
away, right? But then for our virtual clients, what we like to do is, you know, we'll ask them, you know, hey, what's your favorite restaurant? You know, where do you want to get, where do you get your favorite snacks? And so we'll, we'll Uber Eats them, you know, some beverages and some snacks. And so they can kind of chill and snack while they're shopping with us virtually. Oh um, my so gosh, that's yeah. amazing. Did things change for you guys much with COVID then? Or had you already be, been doing all of that to start? I mean, before COVID, we were probably traveling three to five times a month, you know, doing events on the road, you know, wholesale, retail, direct to consumer, B2B. I mean, we were in New York and Philly and Maryland in one month, and then we'd be in Chicago, D.C. and St. Paul the next month. And it was it was good money, but it was exhausting. And it's a lot of work to schlep a bunch of different SKUs and colors oh, and yeah. you know, it's a lot. But um, COVID, it was scary, but it really forced us to you know, try to develop a better game plan for online sales. It, it forced us to communicate with our clients more. It forced us to really um, consider other techniques and approaches that we hadn't really considered before. Yeah. But I, I think that's typical of small businesses, especially in our creative industry and in the handmade industry. A lot of businesses are afraid to bother their clients, right, too much. Yeah. But when you think about it, you know, we, we're getting emails, you know, by the minute from Apple and Target and Crate and Barrel, you know, and the client that really loves your stuff is going to stick with you and they're going to be on the lookout for those, the sales that matter or the information that's important to them. And so I think that really helped us get a better idea of who our client is, what they want and how we can serve them. Yeah, that's so great. So what would you say is your demographic? What do you have all ages or is it what, what age women or do you do men's clothes? I guess I should have asked that too. Yeah, we used to do menswear and we used to do kidswear too quite a while ago. And I loved it. It was so much fun. But for us, because of our size, you know, it just felt like we were spreading ourselves a little too thin. And and our, our bread and butter is women's wear. And, you know, to be honest, at the end of the day, I love kids. I have two kids and, you know, I love guys, right? You know, no hate towards men. But <laughs> I, I, felt, I felt like, you know, I felt like for me personally, you know, women in general, you know, we've we've not been given our dues, right? We've not had the opportunities that that men have had, you know, that our male counterparts have had. And I just felt personally for me, it I I really wanted our, our why for our business is the, the biggest reason why we do what we do is because we want to help women achieve more. And it might sound trite and, and silly to a lot of people, but what you put on your body is just as important as what you put in your body and in your mind. And and the way you dress yourself for the day can seriously affect your productivity. It can affect your confidence, your mindset, your own thinking about your capabilities. I mean, I had a client come to me the other day. I was at a Polish festival of all things. She came up to me amidst the chaos of all the, the polka going on. And she said, I just want to let you know that I have three of your jackets and every time I wear one of my cardigans into a meeting, I negotiate higher for myself. And oh. I was floored. And I loved hearing that. Like I, it literally like feeds my soul because it, it shows me that our clothes are doing exactly what we intended them to do. You know, we want women to kick ass in their careers so that they can level up, so they can dominate, so that they can have a seat at the table. And, and again, it might seem trite to a lot of people, but a simple thing just as, as the clothes you put on your body can really help you achieve that. You know, you you go to a new job, you're going to wear your kick-ass power suit, right? You yeah. are you know, starting your first day at work at, at, as, you know, as a CEO or as a VP of something that's new to you, you're going to wear something that's going to give you the confidence like you've never had so that you can, you know, really command the room. And, and that's what we do. And we do it in a way that I think provides our clients the confidence they need 
with the style that they desire, with the comfort that they require to be able to, to manage their day. You know, most women's workwear is outdated. It's stuffy, it's restrictive and it's ugly. And, <laughs> and, and it's also fussy. It's hard to, it's, it's silk, it's polyester. It's hard to take care of, you know? And right. so we try to, we try to mitigate that as much as we can by making items that we know our clients can wear to work. They can wear to happy hour. They can wear on vacation. They can wear to a bachelorette party. They can wear to a wedding. Just change up the accessories and your shoes and your makeup and your hair and you're good to go, you know? And so I think, you know, for women, too many things have been made too difficult for us. You know, they've been either gatekept or they've been complicated unnecessarily. And so we want to make it easy for women to say yes. We want to make it easy for them to get dressed in the morning. And we want them to be focused on the things that are important, not, you know, how low their neckline is or if their panty line is showing, you know? Right. Yeah, I can tell you're super passionate about it. So you were talking about difficulties. Um, I, you had mentioned to me before this that you are a woman of color. How did that make things difficult for you in trying to pursue your goals? Yeah, you know, I don't know if, I mean, I, I'm lucky. Lucky or unlucky, I guess. You know, I'm my my dad is from Central America. My mom is Mexican. Uh, but my dad is really dark-skinned and my mom is very fair-skinned. You know, I mean, Mexicans were colonized by a lot of, you know, white um, conquistadors and invaders. And so that's just, it's just natural, right? It's history. Mm -hmm. but, um, but, you know, so I'm kind of, I'm, I think I, I can sometimes come across as white passing. And, you know, my parents were really adamant about my sisters and I getting rid of our accents so that we weren't held back in school. So I don't have a super thick, typical you know, I'm not I'm not what people think, I guess, in America of like typical Latin American people. Right. I'm not like it's spicy, you know, like it's just it's right. just not <laughs> I love my culture. Right. And I speak Spanish, but I I, I don't want to say I hide it well, but I, I think people sometimes it's ambiguous. Right. So I've been, mm -hmm. I've been lucky, I guess, in the sense that, you know, um, maybe some people aren't threatened by me or they don't assume that I'm, you know, Latin American. And so maybe I've been afforded certain opportunities that other people or other people in my community haven't been. I will say, I think as a woman, and maybe sometimes as a woman of color, I, I try not to think about it. Or I try, I, I always try to assume that maybe this isn't the case, but I think sometimes it is, you know, it's just, it's hard to define and it's hard to, to, to prove, right? Right. But, um, often instances when it comes to funding or it comes to certain situations where I've dealt with mostly white men, where I've noticed certain, you know, opportunities or certain situations not go in the way that that I know they typically would or have gone for my male counterparts. Right. You know, mm -hmm. so for example, like we are currently in the process of moving out of um, the studio that we're in and, you know, I've been here for almost five years. I've paid my rent on time every month without fail. We paid, we paid three quarter, three months in advance, most quarters. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, even during COVID, we never asked our landlord for a break. He never gave us one. When people were dropping like flies and leaving, we stayed. And, you know, we I, I recently bought a building um, with an investor and another developer this past April, and I was working on it for two years. And I informed my landlord of our plans, you know, just I figured it was the right thing to do. But I, I had a four year lease that I was still working through and I, I, I had no intention of defaulting on my lease. I, I finished the lease. And last year he asked us where our tensions were. I said, you know, we're closing on the building, you know, next April. So we'll probably need another year because it's going to take a year for us to build out and get permits and, you know, so on and so forth. And so he he didn't feel comfortable doing that. He wanted to give me a month-to-month -month lease. And I said, hey, what if we do, you know, I'd rather have a full year, but if you're not comfortable, what do you suggest? So he suggested a six-month lease. And so I said, okay, sure, as long as we can renew it, six months. That was the understanding. That was the agreement that I thought we signed. Um, I, I, you know, I, I trusted the guy. I'd been here for five years, so I didn't, I didn't think, that, that's my fault, I didn't think to double-check. But he came to us in April and said that we needed to be out in June, which was, you know, last month. <laughs> and so oh. I was 
whoa. <laughs> and so, you know, this was something that came out of the blue. And I, I tried to negotiate with him for whatever reason. He wasn't having it. But he said he was not happy about the fact that I was buying a building. And I, I was really perplexed by this. And, you know, I said, is it because I'm a woman? Like, why would you not want me to have real estate in this neighborhood as well? It's, you know, it, that was my mission was to own real estate in a neighborhood that was was up and coming. And and I, I knew it was affluent. I knew it was going to be expensive. But but the majority of real estate in this neighborhood is owned by rich white men. And there's 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 I've done my research. There's no real estate in this neighborhood, this commercial owned by people of color or owned by a woman. Hmm. And, and so, you know, I said, what's the issue? And he just got really belligerent. He was super offended. He just he was aghast that I was even implying that he was being somewhat patriarchal and misogynistic. And, you know, I just I, I had to shut up really quick because otherwise I would ruffle his feathers and I would disrupt the agreement we had and I would lose any chance of being able to negotiate a little bit more time for us to be able to plan a move. Right. And it was, just, it was just the whole thing. And I was really put off. And I was like, why? And then the people coming into our space after us, they're a younger white couple. And, and again, it may not have anything to do with race. It may not have anything to do with gender. But it does feel to me from where I sit, like white people pushing up brown people to put in more white people. But but again, you know, I, I could be wrong. And so I'm just I'm taking it with a grain of salt. I'm doing my best to make lemonade and and you know, we're we're doing what we can to to move onward and upward. So well, yeah. congratulations on your new venture, getting a new building. And is it gonna be a lot bigger than where you're at? Yeah. So the building we're in now is huge. It's a giant, you know, four-story building. It's been here forever. Um, there's about 60 galleries and studios in here. And it's a, it's a great space. It's really a hidden gem of Cleveland. Um, but the building that we're going to, it's on the main drag of this neighborhood. So we'll be, we'll have much better street frontage and visibility. It's an 8,000 square foot building. We haven't really promoted much to any of the local publications here yet that were even moving or that even bought the building because we wanted to make sure that we were careful about triggering, you know, real estate taxes and all that good stuff. But now that we're, we're actually going to build a temporary space in the front of the building for me right now to move into while the rest of the construction is going on behind me. And then I'll move into my permanent space behind myself once, you know, the construction's done and we'll get the front space fixed up. But, but yeah, it's about 8,000 square feet where our intentions are to have about eight to nine other small businesses in there with me. And so it'll kind of be like, um, you know, like if, if Etsy and a strip mall had a baby, right? right. It'll be all, all small local businesses. The, the, the goal for us was to have majority women owned and as many businesses owned by people of color as we possibly could. So right now, I think the stats are 65% um, of the businesses going in the building are owned by people of color and 85% of them are owned or co-owned by women. Oh, so, that's awesome. Yeah, exciting. We're going to have a flower shop, a couple of food concepts, a bakery, a coffee shop. Um, we'll have a nail salon. I'll be in there too. And it's, it's going to be a really great mix. Um, you know, these, these businesses have been tracking with me for about a year and a half, two years. And so they've really been loyal and holding out. And um, we'll hopefully all be able to open fully next spring. Oh, my gosh. That's so exciting. I'm so yeah. happy for you. That's oh, great. Thanks. Yeah, it's been a huge undertaking and also it stresses me out every other day. And I'm like, what the hell did I just do? But why is it called yellow cake? So, you know, people ask me that all the time and it's um, it's there's multiple reasons. But the main reason is that it's a metaphor for the people that we support in our community. And, and you know, we talked about slow fashion earlier. Um, in fast fashion, the main casualties in the fast fashion industry are women and children, and specifically women of color and children of color, right? And so, you know, yellow cake is kind of the stepchild of dessert. It's the forgotten favorite. When you look at any menu at any restaurant, it's either death by chocolate, 
you know, mm -hmm. uh, chocolate lover's cake, you know, molten lava chocolate cake. There's no yellow cake on any menu. There's, you'll see panna cotta and olive oil cake. <laughs> so, you know, um, we, we just really believe that what we're doing with our business is trying to move women forward and not just women, but, but, but people of color and, and those who are often forgotten and overlooked. And so we're trying to do that by serving women and by providing opportunities for women and, you know, just people always say, Oh, women empowerment. And yeah, I guess, I guess you could call it that. But, but for me personally, I prefer the word empowerment notates that, that power is being given to someone that didn't have it. Right. Right. But, but for us, we really prefer the word embolden because what we're doing is we're just providing the tools to our clients and to the people that work with us, we're providing them the tools to embolden themselves because it, it sounds really woo-woo and it sounds super cheesy. It sounds like a bumper sticker or something you'd hear at a women's conference, but like, <laughs> we, we really believe that women have the, the power and the wherewithal within themselves to, em, to empower themselves. They don't need someone else to give them that power. Right. Have it. They just need the tools and the confidence to unlock it and really go for it. And so, so we, we really prefer to use the word embolden. It, it, it fits better. It makes more sense. And it doesn't take away from the woman that's receiving, receiving, you know, to say right. the whole women empowerment movement kind of just myths me a little bit. It kind of like irks me. It just, it, it drives me nuts because, because it's a buzzword that people have glommed onto and it really doesn't mean what people think it means. Right. Yeah. Everybody interprets it different, I think. Right. Right. Um, so clearly you're passionate about what you're doing and you've got a lot of balls in the air for what all you're trying to get accomplished here. Um, yeah. But you mentioned that you do have some kids. So how do you find that work-life balance? How do you do it? Uh, you know, I don't think I'm doing it yet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the work-life balance, a lot of people say that it doesn't exist and some people say that it does. And I'm kind of in the middle, you know, I, I try really hard to be a realist, but sometimes I, I find myself trying to be a purist and I just, I don't, I don't think I found the balance yet. Um, but I'm definitely working my ass off to try to find, find some kind of system that works for me. Um, you know, I have ADHDs and I, I, I was just diagnosed a couple of years ago, but I've always struggled with focusing and efficiency and being on time and sticking to one task. It, it's just, it's always something that's been uh, an Achilles heel for me. But, you know, I've recently, you know, I've got a really great business coach now and I've got, um, I'm so busy that I can't afford to be inefficient. So like sometimes I have to be, um, but I've also got this really great planner that I started using. It's called the full focus planner. It's by Michael Hyatt. And, you know, he's, you know, I, I don't get paid to say this. I just really love this planner. I've not found one that I liked that really worked for me before. But what I like about it is that the concept is so simple. You know, it's a lot of entrepreneurs, especially those with ADHD, they do too much. And they, 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 we, we often uh, overestimate what we can do in a year or we often overestimate what we can do in a day, but we mm -hmm. underestimate what we can do in a year. And so, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, myself included, have these laundry lists of things we want to do in one day. And then we end up not doing even half of it or even a fraction of it. And we feel guilty. And then we end up overworking ourselves. And then we don't end up giving ourselves the rest we need to be able to do the work we need to get done, done properly. So, so that's something that I'm really tr having to untrain myself on. Like, I, I've always been a workaholic and I've always liked working. But that doesn't mean just because you can, you should. Right. So that's few podcasts with people that deal exclusively with the brain. Mm -hmm. And they yeah. say that the, our brains were not meant to multitask, especially at right. the level that a lot of people are trying. So mm -hmm. try not to be too hard on yourself. Your brain is yeah. doing its best. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. That's the thing. I think, I think there's something hardwired in us to think that like when we're multitasking, we're winning, you know, like, I don't know what it is, but I get some kind of like 
weird satisfaction when I can watch a show while I'm folding laundry. And I'm like, see, I did it, Jason. My, my husband's <laughs> project manager, and he was like, you cannot multitask. It's scientifically proven that you're like, you're hurting yourself by trying to multitask. And I'm like, whatever, I can eat lunch and talk to a friend. <laughs> That's, that counts. Right, right. Yeah. Sometimes it can get overwhelming, though. Oh, you yeah. just have to take some steps back and it's like, oh my gosh, I'm doing this to myself. What am mm-hmm. I doing? Yeah. Um, okay. So promote yourself, tell people where they can find your shop and your, you know, websites, all that good stuff. Sure. Yeah. The easiest way to find us is at yellowcakeshop.com. It's spelled just like it sounds just the dessert yellow cake with the American spelling of shop S H O P. So yellowcakeshop.com. And if you, uh, are, you know, if you prefer social media, you can find us on Instagram at yellowcakeshop. That's our handle, all one word. Uh, on Facebook, we're at Yellow Cake Shop Clee. That's C L E for Cleveland. And uh, yeah, you can pretty much find us anywhere and everywhere online. Um, you know, you you may if you type in Yellow Cake Shop, you might find the description or you know definition for uranium and sulfur, which was the code word in the seventies in Vietnam for yellow cake. <laughs> I get that a lot from older men at, at events that we're at, and they you know they saunter up and they're like, "Do you know what Yellow Cake means?" Oh my God, that's funny. Oh, we know, we know. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah, that's where they can find us. And, you know, we're, we're here in Cleveland on the west side in Gordon Square. Um, we are moving to our new building. So we'll be there by next month, probably by between August 7th and 15th, we'll be at the new space. Um, and we'll, we'll still be in the neighborhood. We'll be on Detroit Road, um, not far from where we are currently. So we'll, we'll still be around. Awesome. Valerie, it was so nice to talk to you. I am so yeah. excited for you and your future. It sounds amazing what oh, you're doing. You. Yeah, this was great. I love talking with you too. You're a natural. You're a great host. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Well, I will put everything in the show notes so people know where to find you and I will be in touch. Awesome. Thanks, Don. It was a pleasure. You bet. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.